0: Welcome to the Association of Child Protection Professionals podcast, a weekly podcast where we, alongside guest hosts, share with you the latest in child and family news. Every week we invite safeguarding professionals with expertise in either research or practice to give us their perspective on the stories relating to children and families. There has never been a more important time to keep up with safeguarding news. But with the government regulation changing daily, we realise that not all frontline professionals for adults and children have time to do so. That is why we've created these podcasts, to give you what you need to stay informed. Today, we have a special episode for you. In these special episodes, we take a more focused look at a singular issue relating to child or family safeguarding that you need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we are taking the time with the professionals at the forefront of this issue. But first, let's hear a few words from the AOCPP's team.
1: Hello, I'm Vicki Hill from the AOCPP team and I'm here to tell you about our current free membership trial. We're offering a free membership trial until the 31st of August this year. We realise that the next few months will continue to put pressure on child protection professionals particularly those working on the front line and that's why we're opening our resources to as many of you as possible. Those who sign up for membership will receive online access to our highly respected journal Child Abuse Review. You get discounted entry to our future events, workshops and conferences and access to our special virtual webinar this August on abusive head trauma. So much more on offer as well so sign up for your free membership now and go to childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk to join.
0: Thanks very much. Hello, I'm Wendy Thurgood, the Chair of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Janine Davis about equality, diversity and inclusion. Janine Davis is the co-director of Listen Up Community Interest Company, which works to elevate the experience of marginalised young children in child protection and safeguarding and a trustee for Khan. She has over two decades worth of experience working within children's services, both frontline and national strategy, and still sees herself as a practitioner. Janine manages this while pursuing a PhD at Kingston University, researching the ways in which black children communicate experience of abuse in and outside the home. So it's over to you, Janine, how you got involved and, and the work that you're currently doing. It would be good to have a discussion around that. Thank you, thank you, Wendy. Well, firstly, for me,
1: my journey into safeguarding was a personal one. I was a young person who was in care, and I remember moving into a children's home where I was the only black child and feeling quite different, living in an area which was foreign to me, no one understanding my needs, my cultural needs, and lots of assumptions and stereotypes based on pre-existing beliefs about what it is to be a black girl. So it was always about me having an attitude. And actually, I think it was difficult sometimes for people to actually see my vulnerability and see that actually I was experiencing and presenting trauma instead they seen something else. And I always said to myself from that point, I wanted to work within safeguarding, really starting off in children's rights and participation. And then from there, I went to work with Bernardo's first of all, Bernardo's first um, children's rights service, Um, really wanting to advocate for all voices, but specifically those who tended to be more marginalized, wanting to challenge the narratives, which some assume in relation to children, black children, children from more marginalized communities. And from there, I started working for different services, which worked specifically around child abuse, child sexual abuse, so starting from a frontline capacity, I then started working in more a strategic role. So whilst I, as I said, for me, my routine in was definitely a personal one and due to my own lived experiences, I think it's allowed me to have a really good insight into how far we've come in terms mm-hmm. of understanding, not just in relation to safeguarding, but specifically in relation to more disenfranchised and minoritised communities and how we respond and support children from those
0: groups. Do you really think that we're starting to make a difference in that area? Because I certainly know from growing up when I moved out of London into a very white British area, one of my best friends was experiencing exactly your journey. She had been placed into white foster parents and was really struggling. And I don't know if that really influenced me, but certainly she had a really hard time within the school and within the home. I'm just wondering if we've really come a long way down the line and we're making a difference or we've still got quite a journey to go?
1: I would like to say that from the days of me being in a children's home and there just being a picture of Bob Marley and that being seen as that was your representation, I, I would like to think that there have been some strides and there has been some development but we also have still quite a long way to go. I think that there is a discomfort When it comes to talking, we say equality, diversity, inclusion more broadly. But when we talk about specific areas such as, you know, race, racism in practice and anti-discriminatory practice, anti-oppressive practice, what that really looks like, I think sometimes there can be some resistance. So, yes, I guess I wouldn't want to take away from the, the work and the progress which has happened. However, I do feel we do have more. We have
0: more work to do. It's very much, from my opinion, it's something that seems to be tagged on at the end. You know, when we're doing training, it's tagged on at the end. It's seen as a a tick box or something politically correct that everyone feels that they have the right policies in place, but they're not living it, they're not breathing it, and they're certainly not acting it. I mean, I know when I was working within the CCG, there was a couple of times I really challenged some of the black humour. You know, our job is hard, but actually, they don't know how it affects other people, do they? And it, it's not lived, I think. Perhaps I'm being a bit dramatic.
1: No, I, I don't think you are. I think you're correct. I think that we have we have the words and the right language to use. If it's equality, diversity and inclusion. It's unconscious bias. We have all of this palatable language. However, how we actually enact it within practice, for me, that's where it falls short. I think not only is equality, diversity and inclusion quite a corporate word in itself, it's an acronym. I sometimes question what does it really mean and how do we measure it? How does it influence our practice? How does it become normalized as everyday practice? Or is it just a strategy which is sitting on the shelf which no one picks up? Is it just seen as this separate piece of work rather than something which is actually a core foundation and one of the key principles of safeguarding? So I agree, I, I, I definitely feel that you know, in some places, EDI, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion, has been captured and people are taking it seriously. However, I, I don't feel there's enough investment
0: in no. it. So Janine, what are you personally doing within your work to actually change that? I know it's a big mountain to climb and it's always sort of pigeon steps, isn't it? But what do you feel is really making a difference?
1: Um, I guess two things. One, whether it's making a difference, I am not sure. However, I would like to um, believe that in terms of my personal investment in equality diversity, that's reflected in my subject area I do in terms of my PhD, which is specifically on focusing on how black children communicate experiences of abuse in and outside of the home looking at what are the influencing factors within services or within society which may inhibit or facilitate communication, as well as looking at how messaging and narratives and stereotypes, how that impacts on families and how comfortable and confident they feel to seek support and help. They also provide training. As I said, I'm like a co-director at Listen Up Research. And me and my colleague, Nick Marsh, we established Listen Up purely because we wanted to really elevate and amplify the voices of young people who are often unheard, who we're not necessarily seeing in services, who are traditionally marginalized. So I'm a strong advocate for challenge and for just naming the issue rather than using language, which I feel sometimes sounds great on paper, but doesn't necessarily mean anything in practice. When I speak to different services, Most are quite open. I think they've already come to a stage where they've acknowledged that actually they have an issue or they want to have a better response and understanding in relation to not just how they support young people and families who come into their services but also the workforce because the workforce is diverse and therefore we have to also think about what that means for the practitioners who are also minoritised in various different ways. You know I'm not just talking about ethnicity, there are other diverse experiences and identities which impact and influence how... People, people's experiences in and outside of the workplace.
0: Yeah yeah I mean one particular area that I've been working with and I feel like I'm coming up a bit against the brick wall is in relation to the county lines which is a really live experience and we know the disruption Covid has brought but it, it's very perceived as it is sort of black culture gangs when that really isn't the case and the children that are doing the running aren't your black youth it tends to be white British vulnerable or even from very posh ends of schools but it's still seen when you first I, I challenge in training when they put up these pictures and I say but that isn't the true picture of what's going on I don't know how much you've had to do with that
1: I think unfortunately we're now in a space where we associate different criminal behaviors activities and vulnerabilities to different groups So if we think about honour-based violence, forced marriage, we'll be thinking about a submissive South Asian young woman. If we're thinking about CSE in gangs and sexual violence, we'll be thinking about a young black woman. If we're thinking about gang-affected young boys and young men, we'll be thinking about a black boy and young male. If we're thinking about CSE in the more traditional understanding of CSE, we'll be thinking about white girls. Yeah. So I think that that's an issue and that's what needs to be challenged because I guess I question if we have a six foot four black male in our services, visibly upset, are we seeing a child? Are we seeing somebody who's vulnerable? Are we seeing somebody who's presenting trauma? Or are we seeing somebody who is aggressive and is possibly a gang affected male who needs to be referred to a youth offending service? Exactly. These different yeah assumptions and narratives, as I said, they're pre-existing and we need to talk about the roots because there are, there are some root issues which have influenced and continue to influence the way in which we see young people. It's really important that we have a reflective approach to practice because if we are assuming that based on whether it's your personal characteristics or just assumptions we may hold about different groups of young people, Inevitably, we are already deciding what services they're going to be referred to and really what support they're then going to receive in the long term. So again, for a young black male, we know they're overrepresented when it comes to youth offending we know that and we have to question where do those decisions come from and are they always the right decisions and what are they based on how often do we reflect on our own personal bias our own lived experiences and how we're positioned in the world and how that may influence and impact how we see others I think we often focus on behavior without necessarily questioning our own assumptions and beliefs of why and where our I don't. I question how curious we really are and how often we are accountable for the decisions that we make. I think there's something about justification. And when we have young people coming into services and being siphoned off into different services, I question who made those decisions and why? And how often do we have those really frank and open and transparent conversations with young people?
0: I often talk about, Janine, in relation to stop and think meetings. So when somebody has got to a certain point and they've made a judgment you suddenly realize that if you actually reflect back I do a lot of serious case reviews partnership learning mm-hmm. you look back and you see right back in the beginning that person was labeled and actually it was an incorrect label so as that journey has gone through people have just believed it as fact yeah. and it's not until you get that whole picture that you actually think this wasn't the case in the beginning mm. And we could have made much better if we'd actually worked alongside that young person and actually heard that young person. It's about hearing their voice, isn't it, from whatever walk of life. I still believe professionals miss that and don't do that enough. Yeah,
1: I agree. And I think, I guess that's where EDI for sure, because I don't think when we package EDI up as this strategy and policy, I don't think it reflects an alliance to practice. I think they continue to be seen as two separate areas. When I go out and deliver training, there have been so many times where you know I've had comments such as, "Oh, it was this was good, but I'm not sure why I wasn't expecting to have this conversation," which baffles me sometimes because I think, "Well, we have the Children's Act. It is enshrined within the Children's Act. It is reiterated in Working Together Guidance. It is Article Two of the UN Convention of the Rights of the Child. This is something which is." its legislation. So not only do we have a duty, it's our responsibility, but it's also the right thing to do. And I question as professionals in terms of really wanting to learn, shape and develop and grow. We need to be having these conversations. But I think if there isn't buy-in from leadership, and I think that's one of the key issues, is if there's no buy-in from leadership, if it's not seen as something which is actually essential and a fundamental part of everyday practice, it then becomes a tick box activity. People find it sometimes difficult to... Difficult maybe isn't the correct word. I think it's not seen as... The relevance isn't always necessarily captured and really understood.
0: Yeah. And that's from my experience, when we do the partnership learning, we have a section for equality and diversity and inclusion, and it's still missed. You know, there might be one or two words where they're not analysing exactly what that means for that person, whatever walk of life. And that that won't only be on those forms, it will be on every form. So it's how can we make the subject really come to life that, that really is going to be meaningful? And I guess that's your wish list to get it out there in relation to what we really truly need to do.
1: I think we have a good opportunity now to really drive through and start thinking about what we are doing as services from an individual to organizational level to really embed a quality diversity inclusion into our thinking, into our practice, into our structures, into our policies. COVID-19 has really placed a lens on the pre-existing inequalities we have in society, and there is no room to suggest it's due to individual behaviours. This is structural, it's something which has and is impacting some of the most minoritised and disenfranchised communities. And I think we need to really have some time to really reflect what that means in practice right now. Who are we seeing in our services? Who are missing from our services? The point I'm trying to make is that for some young people who are already minoritised and disenfranchised and kind of rendered to the boundaries of society, with COVID-19, actually, they're even more marginalised now. And I think this is a really good opportunity for services to really, really think about what is our responsibility? And we need to be doing more. How far are we willing to go? I think that's a dereliction of duty, and that might sound really quite harsh and and confrontational, but that's how serious we need to take it. As I said, this is not something which should be seen as a choice and additional tick box to do, or something you do as a part of your probation, or something you do to say we've met this activity and now we've got a service which is culturally Mm. competent. Equality, diversity, and inclusion isn't a list of actions, it is culture, it is how our services function, it is how we welcome everybody into our services it is a way of doing something it is the constant reflection challenging and having sometimes very uncomfortable discussions and conversations it is testing yourself and your own as I said belief systems which again sometimes bring insight but also bring discomfort historically it has not been easy to talk about issues such as racism we know this and I think we need to own it
0: Yeah no true and can you just share because I know you do a lot of training some of the feedback that you get from the training that you do because once they actually start understanding what it's truly about you start seeing those light bulbs go off don't you? Firstly training is so important and
1: not just training to say we've done it but having a space to just reflect is so key and we know that for many practitioners they don't always have the opportunity to do that I recently, beginning of the year, was delivering some training to some police officers, actually, and for this group of police officers and, you know, some social workers were there as well. It was mind opening for them. They were thinking about some of the decisions that they made or some of the assumptions that they had about some young people. And, and for some it was uncomfortable, but what I really appreciated was that they owned that discomfort and they recognised where that came from. And for me, that's where it starts. It's about actually just being accountable, but accountability doesn't mean blame, it means allowing yourself to really almost... It's seeing the world through a different lens and through the lens of young people. And I think that just the feedback was that for some, it was conversations that they had never had before. And that's why I think it's really important when we use language around unconscious bias. Actually, what we don't do is replace that or use that as a means to replace conscious decision making and conscious behaviours. We all have unconscious biases, but... Once we recognise and openly start talking about issues impacting us in the young people we support, actually that's now conscious. We are now aware of it. The next thing is now what do we do? What was really interesting in terms of feedback is most of the practitioners I have delivered training to across the country, none of them had heard of the word intersectionality, coined by a black feminist academic Professor Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 80s. And whilst it was a concept used and applied within Black feminism before that time, she coined it really to articulate and draw attention to the experiences of Black women. So it's roots we're in, looking at how, as a black woman, you are not only experiencing racism, you're also experiencing sexism. And therefore, it's something we have to be able to acknowledge and understand that those experiences will be simultaneous. They're not something which you can separate. So as intersectionality has developed over the years, and you're seeing it more and have seen, I guess, for a while, actually, in... A lot of feminist organisations within the women's sector in the UK use intersectionality as a core basis to really underpin their work and approach. It's not necessarily something you're seeing in practice in terms of safeguarding. I think it's a word, it's become a buzzword now without people really understanding. But intersectionality allows us to really understand pre-existing inequalities which situate and position different groups, especially those who tend to be minoritized differently. So as an example, if you are a black, gay male, What you may experience is racism, homophobia. However, intersectionality is fluid and also changes in terms of the spaces you access. So you could access a gay-friendly space, but actually you may still experience racism in that space. So intersectionality allows us to get underneath, it allows us to think about all of those different intersections an individual is situated within and through the years it's opened up much more now so you can think of intersectionality in relation to class, in relation to somebody who's disabled, age, socioeconomic status, all of these different things. And whilst I don't necessarily believe that in order to be a really good safeguarding practitioner, you need to know the word intersectionality, what I do believe is it gave me an insight into how much we still don't really know and understand in terms of why for a young black girl, her experiences of racism and sexism and ageism or or shape and interact with each other, and she'll experience all of those things simultaneously. She's not a girl over there and black over there. That is going to position how she experiences the world and how she's treated and how she's perceived. In the same way for a person who might be gay, disabled, and from a South Asian background, I believe this is actually a really good opportunity to start applying an intersectional lens to our work. We need to think about, okay, well, what does it mean if you are a young black male and you're experiencing sexual abuse? How are we going to bring you in? Are you going to feel comfortable speaking to a police officer? Not just no child would feel comfortable possibly speaking to a police officer. Actually, when we look at that from an intersectional lens, it allows us to look at pre-existing structural inequalities, which are generational and which impact and influence how children from minoritised communities and backgrounds how they perceive support. So is that going to be is that going to feel like a safe space you can access? Possibly not. And why? Because we know that young black boys are more likely to be stopped and searched. Now we know that young black Caribbean boys are three times more likely to be permanently
0: excluded. It's that blended approach, isn't it? Because people tend to just focus on one thing and they're not looking widely, are they?
1: Yeah, or well we have a universal child approach. And actually, the universal child there is no such thing. And it's really important that if we want to really understand the history of a young person, when a young person is coming in that room, that initial assessment meeting where you have a young person sitting in front of you, it's not just that young person, it's also the history they're bringing and it's also your history. And I think intersectionality allows that opportunity to really unpick some of
0: that stuff. That is relevant to any any child isn't it regardless of what walk of life they come to what class what color it's relevant and it should be the basis and that's why equality should not be a tick box professionals have to have a basic understanding now this is training that is normally done online it doesn't come to life does it our 20-minute conversation has brought the subject to life and it's research-based and it can be really powerful to be able to get this message out there so if anything this is just a really good opportunity that i think we can really build on so this should just be as much as it shouldn't be the start of a conversation i think it's taking a topic and really bringing it to life making it usable and understandable and I think in the future, we can build on this. We, we definitely should be having more open, reflective conversations about what organisations are doing right back from education, early education, you know, primary school, if not even before in maternity services. It was a basic core part of my training, but without even having a title, I feel as a nurse, it's something that you did for every patient on the ward. Every patient that I came would have different individual needs. And I think we've lost that. In the translation of time and labelled it and made it harder do you think?
1: I agree I think first going back to your point about online I don't believe a quality diversity and inclusion training should be online I don't Mm. understand how you can have real meaningful interactive challenging and reflective conversations when you're just basically having to do something online I think it just again reiterates for that professional who's doing that It's importance and actually it's lack of importance and ultimately then is just something tokenistic. You get a certificate at the end and then it goes to HR to say that you've completed this EDI training. What does that mean? How do we actually measure and challenge how that's impacted and influenced that professional's thinking? And again, how then they're going to go out and use that in terms of their everyday work. I think we have to really, again, challenge how we approach equality, diversity and inclusion. In terms of funding, the amount of times I have conversations and it's like, oh, yeah, no, EDI is great, but we don't have the resource. Now, whilst we recognise, and I'm sure we all understand that local authorities, services within the third sector, resource is always going to be an issue. However, if we do not allocate budget, resource time commitment to really embed equality diversity and inclusion what we are basically saying is it is not important and again I think it's important that we go back to our legislation and that's not me trying to because legislation isn't always the way to say oh this is what you need to do because it's in legislation actually the reason I do that when it comes to equality diversity and inclusion because I think people forget that I think it has become so far removed from practice and from safeguarding practice that we do see it as this training h r activity we've actually lost
0: the real true meaning
1: the real true meaning of of this another example is what we need to be asking ourselves is we capture quite a lot of data, but why we have data which says the young person's ethnic background if they are disabled, um their age, all of this stuff, but what do we actually do with that information because actually depending on the geographical location of the organisation or the service, actually that data capture is a really good way of looking at what your service, who your service is seeing and who it isn't seeing and what you could be doing differently. I think we're capturing data, but
0: I'm not sure why and for what reason and for what purpose. There should be far more challenge. It's just number crunching, isn't it? And again, that goes back to translating it into action. It needs to be translated into action.
1: Yeah. Where's accountability? Do we have critical friends? Who are we bringing into services? from my own experience you know me being a black woman i've had many occasions where it's been assumed that i will be that person or you know janine would you like to lead on this no not unless i'm being remunerated. i think if we want to really invest in equality diversity and inclusion and invest in our workforce so that they feel confidence to support and to provide effective and meaningful responses to children and families again we need to fund that we need to have budget we need Mm -hmm. to commit to it I think gone are the days of talking about hard-to-reach groups and hard-to-reach communities. We now need to be thinking, I would like us to challenge our terminology and challenge our approach. Our services are hard to reach. We need to take some responsibility and
0: take some action. Janine, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think it's been reflective and insightful, and I think anybody listening to this, it will bring it to life. And I hope we can have more work within the future it's so thank you for taking time out in your day. Just to finish up I'm sure a lot of people may have questions in relation to our conversation how will they be able to reach you? People want to contact
1: me or find out about my work my research or want to get advice or if they want me to come in and support some of their work then do contact me at hello at listenupresearch.org. My (laughs) account's my name Janine Davis
0: Thank you Janine, that's been a really thought-provoking discussion and I hope our members get a lot from it and the people that are going to listen to this podcast today. It's something that we do all need to be really mindful of and truly act on the points that are being discussed. So thank you again for taking the time out today. If there are any specific topics you want to discuss in future episodes, email us at hello at a-o-c-p-p.org. And if you'd like more information about the Association of Child Protection Professionals, please visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you, Wendy Ferragut, Association of Child Protection Professionals Chair.